tonight, um, this is an extraordinary Bible study. And the title of the message, we have it up here, hey, you feel like giving up? You got to hear this. I mean, there is adrenaline to the soul that we're going to be learning about that gives us the strength to persevere. I think this is one of the most important passages in Scripture. Chapter 12, Hebrews, we're going to read verse 1 down to verse, basically verse 13. And it reads the following, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to... can. Everybody say that next word, Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. He sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself. Lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls, you have not yet resisted the bloodshed, striving against sin. And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening or disciplining or training, it's basically all the same thing, training of the Heavenly Father, God deals with you as as sons. For what son is there whom... Uh, a father does not discipline. But if you are without training, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. And furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them. But he for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness. Now, no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterwards it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it, and therefore strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees, and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be dislocated, but rather be healed. Pray with me one more time. Lord, we love you. We recognize your presence here. We want to pray if there's anyone here who doesn't know you, you would open their eyes to the greatest reality of all, and that is you. You would draw them to yourself. And then, Lord, I just want to pray for those who are discouraged, who have low energy, and, you know, all kinds of crazy things and opposition and turmoil and trials are taking place in their life. I pray, Lord, you would overshadow them, that, Lord, you might give them a, a, a shot of adrenaline, so to speak, to their soul, to awaken them to who you are, your love for them, and your provision and your hand in their life. So, Lord, lead us now and guide us. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. And everyone who agreed said, Amen. All right, you may have a seat. It's 1859. You've probably heard this story. Niagara Falls, the great blondine, right? He stretches a cord across Niagara Falls. He tight ropes this cord all the way to the other side. There's 25,000 people in attendance. They're amazed by this. Of course, like, he put his life on the line, right? And then he actually walked over the same tight rope over Niagara with stilts on. And then he actually put his... He actually put his manager on his back. He's talking about a crazy manager. But his manager on his back, he walked over the tightrope. And then he actually took a wheelbarrow full of cement. And he's got his walking this tightrope over Niagara. True story. 1859 Niagara Falls, the great blondine. After he had actually made it across with the cement, you know, uh, uh, and stuff of, of wheelbarrow, Uh, He ended up addressing the audience. They were going crazy. He said, how many of you believe the great Blondine can put a man in the wheelbarrow and actually take a man over Niagara? And people were going crazy. And there's this one man in the crowd going, I believe it. I'm just the biggest fan. I believe you can do it. I believe you're the great Blondine. Blondine turned to him and said, then you get in the wheelbarrow. The man, it was reported, said under his breath, Oh my God. No, just kidding. Anyways, he's like, "Uh uh-oh. Imagine if 
the Lord was standing before us. And he said, all right, you know that I stepped down from heaven. And we say, we believe it, Lord. In fact, you wrote yourself in the script of life. We believe that the Almighty has revealed himself. And the Lord said, and you know at the beginning of my ministry, as led by the Holy Spirit, and I spent 40 days and 40 nights in prayer and fasting. And, and the enemy came and he tempted me and, to try to take some shortcut. And, and I said to him, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. I trusted the innate goodness of the Heavenly Father. I can trust the Father in the greatest hardship and deprivation that that He's good and He's going to provide for me. And you know that. And we'd say, yes, Lord, we totally believe it. And then you know I endured the cross. I mean, I stepped into Jerusalem during Passover. We're going to be talking about this. I mean, I, 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 I outstretched my arms. I took the sin of the world upon myself. I experienced incredible blackout as I was treated as if I committed every stinking sin in human history. We're like, totally believe it. And then I resurrected. We just, I totally believe it, Lord. You conquered the grave and ascended. We believe it. And the Lord is saying, hey, listen, I, I need you to understand this. And you've got to really get this. I am the author and finisher of your faith. I am the captain of your salvation. I endured. I stepped in to the most incredible chaos. I I gave the incredible self-sacrifice of love, the greatest good on the cross there for the greatest impact throughout all eternity. And, And it wasn't easy. I mean, I endured, I persevered, I kept my eyes on the Heavenly Father. And here's what I want you to understand, is that to follow me, you, you need to learn to endure as well. You need to learn to persevere as well. In fact, I became sin for you. I became sin that you might be made the righteousness of God. I did that, I endured, I bore the sin of the world. Okay, now, just, just get this. It's like the Lord speaking to us. you got to understand, I did all of that. Now it's critical that you learn to persevere and endure so that the Heavenly Father can train you in righteousness. You see, Christianity is a little bit like riding a bike. You need to keep pedaling. Can I hear a big amen to that? Here's the thing. If you stop pedaling, you take yourself out of a place where the Father can train you. And we have the most awesome Father there could ever be. He is perfectly good. You know, chastening and training and discipline, it basically is all the same. He's training us for further blessing. But listen, if we stop pedaling, it's like canceling you know, our gym membership. There's not going to be any more pain, but there's no more gain. I'm reminded of the great coach Tom Landry said, my job as a coach, he was a coach of the Cowboys many years ago, is to make these young men do what they don't want to do in order to become the men they always wanted to be. And similarly, the Father's training is to prepare you to be the person you never thought you'd be. The person really you always wanted to be, the person that actually he's made you to be. But what this is critical, hear this, and this is what the passage is saying. It's critical. If that's the case, that we, that we persevere, that we endure, that we hang in there, that we never quit. You know, in verse 5 down to verse 11, again, the idea of the Father's discipline and training are really synonymous. If God trains you, it means he loves you. It means you are His. And of course, we all have a perception of a father in one way, shape, or form, right? I mean, it can be good, it can be bad, it could be ugly, but I mean, there's no one like our Heavenly Father. And you know, He never takes a day off. He's never low on blood sugar, you know? He is always good. He is perfectly good. But here's the thing. What happens if, what happens if I don't feel like pedaling? You know, it's like the Lord is saying, look, you, you, do you understand that? It's like, I endured. I endured the cross. And, and it's like, I, I purchased the greatest redemption that could ever be known. I bore the sin of the world. I'm creating all things new in myself. I endured. It wasn't easy. I persevered. I never gave up. I became sin that you might become the righteousness of God. And if you receive me, you are righteous. But it's critical that you continue to endure so that the Father then can actually train you. 
You say, well, like, man, what happens when I don't feel like pedaling? Here's the thing. The Hebrew writer is actually speaking to an audience of Jewish followers of Jesus who were discouraged. And it meant that they had low energy and they had low activity. In fact, this, the verse in verse 12, I think we have it up on the screen, therefore strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees. That's a picture of the people who are just, man, they're discouraged. They have low energy. They're bummed. They're demoralized. And the writer of Hebrews is not so much concerned that they're going to deny Jesus. He's concerned that they're going to remain static. He's concerned that they're not going to keep pedaling. Now, there's a backstory to this, and it's important that we understand that. We've got to create some context before we nail some application. If you go back to chapter 10, I want you to see this. There's a backstory to all of this discouragement, and it tells us in chapter 10 of Hebrews, verse 32, that they had experienced some incredible opposition and persecution. So we can understand on one level why they might be discouraged. It says in verse 32, but recall the former days in which after you were illuminated, you endured a great struggle with sufferings. Do you see that in verse 32, you guys? Look at verse 33. Partly while you were made a spectacle by reproaches and tribulations, partly while you became companions of those who were so treated, for you had compassion on me in my chains and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing that you have a better and enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. Therefore, don't cast away your confidence, which has great reward. Look at verse 36. For you have need of, can everybody say the next word? Need of endurance. It's like, okay, look up here for a second. Look, you've been illuminated. The lights have turned on. Watch this. Like, you have been given the greatest understanding you could be ever given, and that is who the Lord is. The Lord himself has revealed himself in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. The lights turned on. You are illuminated. Okay? And once your eyes are open to the greatest reality of all, which is who Jesus is, it changes everything. So you were illuminated. After that, you experienced opposition. And it was intense. But just pause here for a second. For a Jew to embrace Jesus as the Messiah. And then in doing so, to see the Torah or the Tanakh or the Old Testament, uh, particularly the Torah, excuse me, as basically half of it now is obsolete. The temple sacrifices are no longer at play um, because Jesus paid the debt of sin. The ceremonial laws, poof, they're like all gone. If you're a Jew following Jesus and you actually believe that, you are convinced that Jesus is who he claimed to be. You are convinced the fact that he had resurrected from the dead. There's no way you would take such a stand to follow Jesus unless you were absolutely convinced he conquered the grave, he resurrected from the grave. Can I hear a big amen to that, right? So they were like, man, we have been illuminated. We totally believe Jesus, Son of God, God the Son. We believe in the gospel, the power of God to salvation. We believe it. We have been illuminated. Then they had pushback. Then they were like, you know, attacked. And they were persecuted. And what the writer is concerned about is that not so much that they just deny Jesus, but that they remain static. They remain where they are. They stop moving forward in their life because if that's the case, it takes them out of a great place of future blessing and great growth in the Lord. You know, I don't know. What's your backstory? What's going on in your life? For these guys, it was persecution. It was major peer pressure. They were being mocked, made a spectacle in their generation. But discouragement hits all of our lives. I mean, sometimes we, we all probably don't feel like peddling. We get discouraged. We feel low. And you know, there are common triggers to that. I have to tell you something. Sometimes, man, I get discouraged. 
where I just like, oh man, I don't feel like pedaling. It's not a matter of denying Jesus. I believe he is who he is. And I love him. But sometimes when you have low energy, you discourage. I mean, it's demoralizing. And there are certain triggers to this. Your output can be more than your input. Maybe you're battling illness. Maybe there's relational conflict. Maybe there's physical exhaustion. Maybe you've come after, off a major victory. Maybe a, an expectation has not been met. Hey, you know, we can be doing the most important and most right thing in life, which is honoring God, and yet experience opposition in doing so. The question becomes, how does the author encourage discouraged people with low energy, low activity, and yet their endurance is absolutely essential to training? How does he do that? Okay, Look back at chapter 12 real quick. We're going to get to some application here. Look back to chapter 12. I mean, the nutshell here is the first three verses. This is what he does. He doesn't just say, suck it up. You know, he says, you've been illuminated. Just kind of suck it up. No, what he does is that he, he wants them to be intentional in their thinking. And he identifies four specific realities here. The first thing he basically says in verse one, and we have it up on the screen, is he wants them to allow the heroes of the faith to actually speak into their life. And that's, that's what he means when he says, therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of, can somebody tell me, witnesses. Well, well, the therefore refers back to chapter 11. And chapter 11 is known as the hall of faith, the great men and women of history who had relationship with God, who were informed by the one who knows all things. And as a result, faith is totally reasonable. But you look back at the great men and women of old, one of the common threads in their life is that Man, they had hardship. It wasn't easy at times. And what he's saying is, let the great men and women of faith speak into your life. Hey, let me tell you something. Being a Christian is a little bit like a world-class athlete. It's true. Because the world-class athletes are the minority, and we're the minority as well. World-class athletes have specific training to bring out the best and just develop the potential that exists in their DNA. And as believers, we embody on planet Earth a high-grade love. Can I hear an amen to that? A high-grade faith and trust in the true living God, and courage and fearlessness. And let me just say something. We, we need to allow the great patriarchs and matriarchs of old to speak into our lives. Allow the heroes of the faith to speak into your life. Like, what are you talking about? Well, if you go back and look at verse 7, he just mentions Noah in chapter 11. I mean, here's a guy living in a wicked generation, a generation that was breaking down. And we're living in a generation that is disintegrating. Oh, there's major hope. There's no doubt about it. But there's a breakdown. I mean, just let Noah speak into your life. He, he didn't allow himself to be numbed by the breakdown and dumbed and desensitized and then disintegrate. He saw the big picture. He made the wisest decisions for his family, for his life, and to honor God. And I think of Abraham. And we just mentioned in verse 8 in chapter 11. And I mean, let Abraham speak into your life. The Lord promised Abraham that through him, the entire world would be blessed. He would make him a great nation. Well, Abraham only saw the first generation of that. I mean, he, he saw the Messiah by faith, but he never saw him in, in, in bodily form. Other people believe maybe a theophany, but I mean, he only, he only saw so much. He only saw so much of that nation. He only saw so much of the plan of salvation unfolding in the world. Here's my point. I mean, imagine if he had given up, though. I mean, the reality is through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the entire world has been blessed in Messiah. Can I hear another big amen to that? I mean, let him speak into your life that your life is bigger than your lifetime on planet Earth. I mean, there's so much at stake. Don't give up. Your life impacts the next generation directly or indirectly. 
Let Moses speak into your life. Man, 80 years of age. He's growing in awe of the Lord. He's taking his sandals off. He's just like, you know, worshiping God in holiness, which means indescribableness. He's open for new ventures of faith. I mean, why not? You know, recently, our family was shaken, soul-shaken by a trial that we had experienced with our daughter, our eldest daughter. She sung here many times. Many of you know Sarah. And make a long story short, two years ago, she went to the doctor. She had a little mole on her neck. And they did a biopsy. And we don't know why to this day, but the doctor cleared her when at the time it was actually melanoma. And that's very dangerous. But he, for some reason, he just thought it wasn't. But I don't know. It's still crazy. I, yeah. Anyways, but it was. And, and then it became revealed just a, a month or two ago that, you know, this was an issue. And it was like, oh my goodness gracious, she's had this on her neck for two years. And it just shook us. Because the doctor said, you know, there's a possibility of spread. And it goes to lymph nodes, all these things. And, you know, so it, you're just thinking, my goodness, there's this viper on your doctor's neck. I mean, it was scary, I'll just be frank with you. And, and like for about five or six days, I just needed to step outside of the house. I had this favorite place I go pray up in the, up in the cliffs. It was like it was a young man. I went back there. And I'll just be perfectly honest with you. I cried and cried out to our Heavenly Father. And I just needed to cry, and I needed to cry out to our great Papa because He is awesome. And let me tell you how he spoke to me. It was like, look back to the heroes of the faith. And in verse 30 of chapter 11, you don't expect you to check it out, but it mentions Jericho. And how the Lord surrounded Jericho. And on the seventh day, it ended up falling when the children of Israel came in to the promised land. And, and just this idea that, Lord, you could surround this lesion on her neck. And, and you could just isolate any bad cells from going anywhere. Just like you, you know, isolated Jericho and, and you just overcame it. Man, that gave me a focal point and it built my faith and that was my prayer. And I just want to say glory be to God. He answered that prayer. And she's healed him. Hey, number two, check this out. It's basically in verse one. You got to drop excess weight. And we're talking about that which facilitates endurance. It's critical that we persevere. It's critical that we finish. It's critical that we keep pedaling. And, and, and what's going to facilitate that encourages us is the heroes of the faith. And number two, we have to drop excess weight. Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. And here's the metaphor. The metaphor, we're in a long-distance run. I mean, there's just no way you can be carrying excess weight and expect to finish well in a long-distance run. You know, I mean, I, I'm sure you've never, like, showed up to go for a run and, and you see someone getting ready and they're, like, you know, maybe on a track somewhere and they're wearing scuba gear and they're, like, wearing, like, flippers, you know, and they're, and they're actually trying. What? That's just crazy. And here's the thing. The single greatest demoralizing factor that saps energy from our life and wastes energy is sin. It's like a weight. It pulls us down. None of us are perfect. We're all under construction. But listen, there should not be active compromise on the desktop of our life Tonight, we need to lay it aside. Tonight, we need to turn from it. Tonight, we need to dump it. Can I hear another big amen to that? So it's like, hey, if you've come tonight and there's some compromise. Listen, sin is no friend of anyone. The Bible says it may be pleasurable for a season, but ultimately it brings judgment. And sin morphs into worse realities. It's not your friend. And we can't manage compromise. And actually, when he says, and the sin which so easily ensnares us, it, it actually seems to speak of the fact that there are certain struggles that we can have in life. 
a specific struggle with sin, the sin which so easily ensnares us. And I'll tell you, if you look in context, one of the areas that we need to be aware of, of course, is in our relationships. I mean, there are areas for which I struggle. And it may be anxiety. It may be, for me, maybe being reactive when I'm taken out of my comfort zone. But I want you to look at verse 14. We have it up here. Because the little sins of being reactive and unloving and bitter rather than forgiving and letting it go and not sweating the small stuff. Man, those type of things trip us up. The little sins can be really big. And just look at verse 14. We have it up on the screen. Work at living in peace. I mean, how do we get along with each other? You've got to work at it. Work at living in peace. You guys see that up there? Work. Work at living at peace. 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 A skipping CD. Work at living at peace. It takes work. Work at living in peace with everyone and work at living a holy life for those who are not holy will not see the Lord. It's very critical that we manage our interpersonal relationships so we're not reactive, but we're patient with one another. Because let me tell you something, unresolved relational baggage where there's bitterness and there's unforgiveness, it's defiling to every aspect of our life. And I think when we come to know the Lord, sometimes we throw away the big weights, you know, whatever they may be. But I'll tell you something, those little weights, they snare our feet. And the idea is you're in a long-distance run. You've got to be careful about those little things because you end up tripping. Both need to be laid aside. Number three, check this out. It's in verse 1 as well. You never give up. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. I want to expand on a, an idea mentioned earlier. One reason we are never to give up is because it is in endurance that the Father actually trains us. And we mentioned this. Never give up because it's in endurance that He trains us and He grows us and He blesses us and He prepares us for greater influence. Here's the thing in the run of life, and it's not a sprint. So it's not just a reaction. It's not just an emotional explosion. It takes will. It takes effort. It takes prayer. It takes dependency upon the Lord. That's the nature of life. That's the nature of Christianity. That's the nature of following Jesus. But when we face trials and adversity, the natural inclination is to bail. The natural inclination is like, I want out of here. Man, I, I, I just want to bail on this friend. I want to bail on work. and I, I want to bail on the church. I mean, who likes to be out of their comfort zone? But it's amidst the hardship that the Lord gets really specific with us. He wants to get really specific with us. He doesn't necessarily answer the question, why am I going through this trial? And of course, that's a natural question because trials can be painful and confusing. Confusing. He doesn't even often change our circumstances. What he wants to do is change us. You see, the Bible says when troubles of any kind come your way, Consider it an opportunity for great joy. When your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. So let it grow, for when your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect and complete, needing nothing. Listen, I think of the great Apostle Paul. I mean, man, there was a full-on lie said about him on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem total false information that he had brought a non-Jew in the Jewish court. It was a lie. And there was a mob scene. They almost killed him on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. He's arrested. He appeals to Caesar. He ends up in Caesarea for two and a half years. He gets on a boat. We were just sitting this Sunday night. Shipwreck on Malta. He, he stands before 
like the Nero himself, the emperor of the, of the Roman Empire. He's under house arrest in the compound of the emperor. So for years and years and years, he's, he's isolated. He's taken off the missionary trail. It could be said in some way, his circumstances are not changing. But, listen, he never gave up. He talked about the race that he is to run and he was going to finish. So help him God. He never gave up. He endured. So his circumstances didn't change. But the thing is, is that Paul continued to change. Paul would say, I learned to be content. I I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It's like his circumstances were not so much changing, but Paul was changing the way he thought. He was changing his outlook, which then opened up seeing greater possibilities that he didn't see before. Hey, listen, I mean, if Paul would have quit, would we have had nearly two-thirds of the New Testament in our lap tonight? I mean, he's isolated. He's not on the missionary trail like he used to be, but he's like open for new beginnings. He's praying for wisdom. Lord, what do you want to say to me? And a whole other ministry opens up, and now he's penning these fantastic letters inspired by the Holy Spirit. Hey, listen, you never know what's right around the corner. Don't give up. And God always gives us the grace that we need to continue to run. Can I hear another amen to that? I love the story of John Wesley. For many uh, historians, they believe that actually his work there in England saved the country. He was a great, wonderful believer and a great teacher and evangelist. And I'm going to simply read you an excerpt from his diary. Sunday a.m., May 5th, preached in St. Anne's. Was, not, was asked not to come back anymore. Sunday p.m., May 5th, preached in St. John's. Deacon said, get out and stay out. Sunday a.m., May 12th, preached in St. Jude's. Can't go back there either. Sunday a.m., May 19th, preached in St. Somebody Else's. Deacons called special meeting and said I couldn't return. Sunday p.m., May 19th, preached on the street. Kicked off the street. Sunday in May 26th, preached in the meadow, chased out of the meadow as the bull was turned loose during the service. Sunday in June 2nd, preached out at the edge of town, kicked off the highway. Sunday p.m., June 2nd, afternoon, preached in a pasture. 10,000 people came out to hear me preach. Thank God the boy did not give up. Hey, you want to allow the great heroes and champions of the faith to speak into your life. I mean, we are being trained in a way that produces the highest grade courage and love and hope. And we need the right people speaking into our life. We need to drop the excess weight because sin is demoralizing And we must make a commitment, never give up, because it's in endurance that the Lord trains us. Well, let me just say this, you guys, and we're going to bring this to a conclusion. And this, but this, we're not done yet. This is phenomenal. There's an aspect to this passage that's just off the charts. I I want to read a paraphrase from uh, this passage here. And it reads the following. Do you see what this means? All these pioneers who blaze the way, all these veterans cheering us on. It means we'd better get on with it, strip down, start running, and never quit. No extra spiritual fat, no parasitic sense. Keep your eyes on Jesus, who both began and finished this race we're in. Study how he did it, because he never lost sight of where he was headed. That exhilarating finish in and with God, he could put up with anything along the way, cross, shame, whatever. And now he's there in the place of honor, right alongside God. When you find yourselves flagging in your faith, go over that story item by item. The long litany of hostility he plowed through, that will shoot adrenaline in your soul. 
And this is where we get to the final point. Let me tell you something. Here's what's critical. You know what's going to shoot adrenaline, which wakes us up, that takes us from like, you know, low energy and low activity to being awakened and energized. Man, we've got to keep our eyes on Jesus. And you know what our Lord Jesus did? He kept his eyes on the Heavenly Father. I mean, how do you explain Jesus walking into Jerusalem? It's during Passover. It's Nisan 10. Historically, it's when the Passover lambs were set aside. He is presenting himself as John the Baptist would say, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He's stepping in to a city that has like a million people. He's presenting himself as the new exodus. I'm going to take the world out of the greatest enslavement it's in, which is a broken relationship with Almighty God. How do you explain him coming down the Mount of Olives, coming into really a hornet's nest, as he's going to have the chief leaders coming at him like gangbusters? How did he endure being treated as if he committed on the cross every stinking sin in human history and then resurrecting from the dead and then ascending to the Father? How did he endure the ultimate endurance run that led to the greatest victory that has resulted in the greatest benefit to all? Here's the answer. He had total trust in the relationship he had with the Heavenly Father. He trusted his Father. He trusted the goodness of his Father. And that's why he kept stepping. That's why he never, ever gave up. That's why he endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. Because because he trusted the Heavenly Father. And let me just say, he embodied a relationship with the Father, companionship with the Father, that he wants us to experience in principle as well. In fact, the Bible says that the Spirit of his Son lives in us where we cry, Abba, Father. And when you look at the Lord, I mean, he just had the most transparent authentic, open, heartfelt relationship with the Father. If, listen, it's critical to look to Him, to endure and never give up, and be a part of the training of the Heavenly Father in our life to train us in righteousness, then it's critical that we look to Him and we see that He actually looked to His Heavenly Father. How many of you know about Gethsemane out of curiosity. I know most of you. Raise your hand. Have you heard of Gethsemane? It means oil press where Jesus was under incredible duress prior to his arrest. It's at the base of the Mount of Olives. But let me just tell you, the Lord was under such radical duress prior to his arrest, spearheaded by Judas, and then ultimately he was crucified, that he was sweating drops of blood. And he asked Peter, James, and John if they would stay awake with him. But they fell asleep. It's like he tried to surround himself with companionship. On a human level, he needed it. That's how I interpret it. That's what I believe. He was asking, can you stay awake with me? But they fell asleep. But the Heavenly Father never falls asleep. And in the darkest time in his life up to that point, he's pouring out his soul to the Heavenly Father. And he actually says, if it be your will, may this cup pass from me. I mean, this cup, it's a metaphor. It doesn't just speak of death. Inside this cup is every stinking sin in human history. The killing fields, the holocaust, the rape, the murders, the racism, the pride, your sin and mine. And what he's saying is, Father, it's like, I, 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 you, you want me to drink this cup to internalize it, to take the sin of the world uh, upon myself and conquer it in my resurrection. What I just think is interesting is like, Lord, why, why, did, you, why did you even pray this, Lord, if it be your will, may this cup pass from me? Because prior to that, he had just told the disciples 
to do this in remembrance of me. It was a Passover meal. I mean, he knew he was the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. I mean, so what's happening? Why did he say that? Well, listen, as a man, he is pouring out his soul to the Heavenly Father. He is totally transparent with him. It speaks of the intimacy of the kind of relationship he had with the Heavenly Father. How else do you interpret this? That as a man pouring his soul out to the Heavenly Father to whom he totally trusts and ultimately says, not my will, but your will be done. Let me just ask you something. Do, do, you, do you trust the Heavenly Father? Do you trust that He is good? Let me tell you that in our blood, actually, it could be said the default condition of our heart is actually distrust. It's part of the ramifications of the fall of man. As one commentator said, the lie which sinners have believed since the fall, the lie of the not to be trusted because he does not love me, false father. That the Heavenly Father is restrictive. That He's not really out for your highest good. He cannot be trusted. But Jesus came in the full expression of the Father to actually restore relationship and trust with the Heavenly Father. Because on that cross, it was not only a demonstration of self-sacrifice and love, But He took your sin and my sin. He became sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. And look, if He didn't didn't forsake us on the cross 2,000 years ago, He's not going to forsake us now. And He only has our highest good in His heart. Let, Let me put it another way. If you are involuntarily in pain, and generally that's the case, if you're, if you're experiencing trouble involuntarily, if your heart is broken involuntarily, if you're confused and disoriented involuntarily, here's what Jesus did. Jesus voluntarily stepped into chaos, stepped into pain, stepped into loneliness. He said on the cross, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He was quoting Psalm 22. It's a question. He's asking a question for which he knew the answer. He was there actually being forsaken, taking our sin upon himself so that we would never, ever be forsaken. Can I hear a big amen to that? And in so doing, a demonstration that the Father is good and you can trust Him. Let me me say it this way. Listen, you look at Jesus, His pain revealed, it revealed who His Father is because He took His pain there. And in in many ways, and I I mentioned this to the men up at our conference and stuff, but i got to tell you something. Our pain reveals who our Father is. The the burdens in our life will reveal who the Heavenly Father is to us. He wants us to bring our burdens to Him. He wants us to bring our weaknesses to Him. He wants us to bring our fears to Him. I mean, I'll be honest with you. He wants us like just like total transparency, authenticity, pour it out to Him. He wants to meet us there. He is a good, good Father. He wants to meet you there and comfort you. He wants to meet you there and give you wisdom. He wants to meet you there in greater intimacy. And you know, He always answers prayer. He always answers prayer. It's either yes, no, or wait, but He always answers prayer, and it's always according to His perfect will. Here's the thing. I I, I just want to say this. In a few moments, I I want us to spend time in prayer because I know some of you are burdened. I know some of you are concerned about your children. I know some of you are concerned about your marriage. I know some of you are concerned about this generation. I know some of you like to see a revival, you know, in the South Bay in L.A. Can I hear a big amen to that? And it's like, here's the thing. Let's bring it to Papa tonight. 
Let's just be like totally transparent. It's like, Lord, would you help me? This is a struggle. I'm battling with this, this weight issue, i.e. of sin or compromise. Help me, Lord. Total transparency to him. And I want you to prepare your heart for that. But you know, this is an audience that was illuminated. And I believe for many here tonight, the lights are going to turn on in your life, maybe like never before. You say, what are you talking about? Well, look here, the joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the cross. And a part of that joy is actually seeing you in a love relationship forgiven and protected in an eternal relationship with the Heavenly Father. You know, the Bible says, God forbid, that we should glory in anything other than the cross of Christ. My goodness gracious, Jesus' death, I mean, has been celebrated for 2,000 years. There's no other death in all of history that has been celebrated like his death. And why is that? He said he would give his life. The Bible says that his arm is not too short that he cannot save. His ear is not too heavy that he cannot hear. The Bible says our sins have separated us from the intimacy and companionship and relationship that the Lord has created us to experience. And listen, the fact... The fact that God actually wrote himself in the play of life, that God actually came and revealed himself, that God became a man, it tells us how serious the problem really is. I mean, not to be silly, say you're in an apartment complex and the manager knocks on the door. And you open and the manager says, you know, we have an issue. There's an issue. Oh, there's an issue. This is a concern. Okay, thank you. Okay, and then the next day, the security person comes, you know, there's an issue, there's a concern. Okay, thank you so much. And then the next day, a police officer comes and goes, you know, there is an issue, you know. I mean, this is serious. Okay, really, thank you very much. And then the next day, it's like the SWAT team shows up, all right? And it's like, hey, there is like a big issue. And then it's, okay, thank you very much. And then the next day, the Navy SEALs show up. Okay, you get the point, right? There's something very serious going on. The fact that God became a man tells us tells us we need him. It tells us that there's an issue that he wants to address. It's a serious one. And you know, when Jesus was on the cross, the Bible tells us that the sky darkened, the earth shook, the veil in the temple was torn, that actually the righteous were raised from the dead. Jesus, like the greatest warrior of righteousness, came to fight came to bring peace, came to address the core problem of man, and that is a broken relationship with the God who made us. And listen to me, God loves you. Maybe you're here for the first, first time. Listen, He loves you. He sent His only begotten Son. Jesus said, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Whosoever believed in Him would not perish, break down now and forever, but have everlasting life. He's reached out to He died in your place. He paid the debt of your sin before a holy God. And He wants to give you something tonight. He wants to give you Himself. He, he wants to have relationship with you. And it could be said, when He was on the cross with one hand, He reached up and He took the hand of the Father and with the other, he reaches out to every single human being. And I believe he's reaching out to lives here tonight. And what I'm going to ask you to do is by faith receive him. You say, well, what are you talking about? Well, number one, recognize what he's done for you. He not only created you, but he's revealed himself to you. We've been studying it. Number two, it's critical, it's essential that you repent. Jesus said, unless you repent, you shall perish. And the idea of repentance means to change the way you think and embrace Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, which then leads to a lifestyle change. Do that tonight. Number three, receive Him. He really is just a prayer away. The Bible says those who call upon the Lord shall be, can someone tell me, saved. And do it right now. You know, today is the day of salvation, the Bible says. Now is the acceptable time. If you hear the voice of God, harden not your heart. You say, well, Greg, you know, I, I just, 
you know, I, you just don't know what I've done and where I've been and what's gone on in my life. I, I, I don't, but I know where he's been. And he's given his life for you. And he paid the debt of your sin. And I am praying no one would leave here tonight having not embraced Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. Pray with me at this time. Lord, thank you for tonight. Thank you for encouraging us, Lord. You're beautiful and you're wonderful and you're awesome. And Lord, I want to pray for those here who are in a place of making a decision now. What they're going to do with you. I pray no one would leave here having not embraced you as their Lord and Savior. I pray, Lord, that they would receive the free gift that you purchased for them on the cross of forgiveness and hope beyond the grave and heaven. And you want to give that to them. You want to give that by giving yourself to them. And Lord, you said you stand at the door and knock and if anyone would hear your voice and open the door, you would come into their life. Well, Lord, we've heard you and you're beautiful and you are love and you don't want anyone leaving or not forgiven and cleansed and have the assurance that you are in right, relation, in right relationship with you. So I pray now, Lord, open eyes. And I pray everyone who needs to open their heart to you would do so in these next few moments. And I just want to ask a church family, as we're in an attitude of prayer, to be praying. But I want to say to you who would like to receive Christ, if that's you, you're saying, yeah, I recognize what he's done for me, and tonight I want to take a stand, and I want to invite him to be my Lord and Savior, and I, I want to seize the moment while I have it. If that's you, I want you just to raise up your hand right now, and I'm going to pray for you. Just slip up your hand. God bless you. I say, just raise up your hand. Say, that, yeah, man, I want this settled. I want my eternity settled tonight. God bless you. Anyone on the side, in the front, in the back, you raise up your hand if you'd like to receive Christ. And I'm going to lead you in a word of prayer in the next few moments. Anybody else in the back, in the front, the Lord is speaking to you thinking, man, I want this settled. And I want to invite Jesus Christ to be my Savior. You raise up your hand. I just want to make sure clear, clear invitation has been given. Anybody else in the back, in the front, if you would like to receive Christ, you raise up your hand. Anybody else? Lord, I want to thank you for these precious ones that have raised their hands. And in fact, what, right where you're seated, I want to lead you in a word of prayer. And this is a prayer to ask Christ to come into your life. And so you, you pray this prayer out loud. Jesus said, you know, if you confess me before me, I'll confess you before my Father, which is now. There's just something powerful about making a profession of faith. And really, this is not only doing just that, but it's a prayer. And the Lord will honor this prayer. So pray with me. Pray out loud with me. Lord Jesus. I call upon you now to be my Savior and to be my Lord. I believe in you. I believe you gave your life on the cross for my sins, resurrected from the grave. You're alive. Lord, fill me with the life of God. Cleanse me of all my sin. And thank you, Lord, that as I call on you now, you hear this prayer. Thank you for dying for me. Thank you for resurrecting. Thank you for coming into my life. And thank you for making me your child, both now and forever. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Amen.